Welcome to History Uncensored. My name is Seth Michaels, I'm your host, and today we cover a pretty crappy topic. I don't know why I picked this as my inaugural episode, but you're going to have to deal with it. Today's episode is going to focus on slavery, or more specifically, the very origins of it. We're going to go back before prehistory and learn about dogs, wolves, agrarian and non-agrarian societies, all sorts of fun, stupid shit. So as I said, my name is Seth. Let's get right into it. Uh, So before I really get started, I want to just go over a few important terms that you're going to hear throughout the podcast today. And the very first one is slavery. And the definition of slavery refers to a condition in which individuals are owned by others who control nearly every aspect of the chattel's life. Man, uh, it's pretty darn disgusting to say that. The state of being who is a chattel of another, submission to a dominating influence. Slavery has existed throughout history in many times and places. The ancient Greeks and the Romans, Incas, Aztecs, all of them had slaves. Did you know that slaves still exist today? And they've existed before they were even civilizations? There are a few other ways we can describe slavery. Bondage, enslavement, servitude, subjugation, thraldom, thrall, serfdom, vassalage. Some of these terms are terms that I'm sure you have heard in your history lessons previously, um, but maybe you didn't connect them directly to that of slavery. Um, All of them basically have a direct link to it. Another thing we are going to be hearing a lot about in this podcast are hunter-gatherers, which is a type of living, how people lived, centering on following the source of your food, a very nomadic lifestyle. You're generally a a nomadic lifestyle, where men generally went out to hunt with only about a 5% chance of return on the hunt. So one out of every 20 times they came back with food, while women and children foraged, generally. Um, I'll use the term agrarian, the society based on agriculture. Holocene is relating or denoting the the present epoch where we live today, which is the second epoch in the Quaternary period and followed by the Pleistocene. And followed the Pleistocene, excuse me. Pleistocene. Pleistocene is the previous geological epoch, which lasted uh, just over two and a half million years um, from all the way to about 12,000 years ago. It uh, spanned the world's most recent uh, period of glaciations uh, and the end of the Pleistocene corresponds with the end of the most recent one. Mesolithic, the Stone Age of Man, the Middle Stone Age of Men. This is many of the larger mammals became extinct. So this is when all those mammoths and saber-tooths, they kind of died out. The Neolithic Age, or stone tools and weapons, provided humans an advantage they carried over to their societies of the time. Now, after you've learned a few uh, terms here, let's get right into it. And I don't think there's any better way to get into it than hearing from a slave, or at least a quote from one on agriculture, believe it or not. This is a quote from Frederick Douglass. The topic of agriculture offered some refuge from his ignorance, for with few things, perhaps more than farming, does one find there is nothing new under the sun. One of the very oldest themes 
The origins of agriculture reach far beyond the limits of authentic history, for men tilled the soil long before they wrote books, and would have never written books if they had not tilled the soil. From this perspective, it is pleasant to know that in color, form, and features, we are related to the first successful tillers of the soil. In this way, he's talking about the African Americans of the time. To the people who taught the world agriculture, that the civilization which made Greece, Rome, and Western Europe illustrious, and even now makes our own land glorious, sprung forth from the bosom of Africa. In this way, while the Briton and Gaelic races wandered like beasts of prey in the forest, the people of Egypt and Ethiopia rejoiced in well-cultivated fields in abundance. It's a pretty epic quote from a, a guy who lived 150 years ago. Next, we're going to be talking about domestication, and this is really the origin point, and at least in my point of view, where slavery comes from. The domestication of animals provides an entirely unique and historical and scientific look uh, at the history of slavery. And I'm going to talk about the very first domesticated animals, how they were domesticated, and what that meant for humanity and how accomplishing the task led us down this agrarian path toward Neolithic revolution. It all started kind of as I discussed uh, at the end of the Pleistocene, more than 12,000 years ago. Well, humans were just starting to create semi-permanent settlements. The Ice Age just ended, and the ecology of Earth at the time was rather abundant in comparison. Indeed. People changed their views of many things during the Neolithic period, including the returns they expected from food, uh, the acceptable le levels of risk, uh, their ability to change their environment, residential stability, property rights, the definitions of family and kinship, and uh, residential groupings, and the benefits of having more and more children. Most of these changes find their roots in the Mesolithic period when only hunter-gatherers were living, were living. But they came together during this Neolithic transition to produce a dramatic change in society. This next part comes from um, Severo S. Uh, from Archaeology and Anthropology Science in 2017. A more recent explanation for a Neolithic transition is based on the role of property rights, the value we put on possessions, and the meaning the possessions had on an egalitarian society. This idea of an increasingly diverse and unequal social structure that grew out of the acquisition of personal wealth, especially as societies began a more sedentary lifestyle. In Mesolithic Europe, for example, as and is illustrated uh, by a few cultures, hunter-gatherers were not mobile, and nor were they organizationally simple. On the contrary, they tended toward socio-economic complexity, including sedentism, staying put. Similarly, Neolithic European farmers were not super productive uh, and weren't always sedentary. They were often mobile and had a mixed economy, an economy combining hunter, hunting and gathering as well as farming. Uh, this kind of throws a wrench in things. It was often believed that farmers were affluent and rich and hunter-gatherers were poor. Um, the, light, the latter part of this, right, uh, was challenged by results of several ethnological studies of hunter-gatherer groups. Even modern hunter-gatherer uh, groups 
were very different from the usual description of hunter-gatherer societies that we had known. Um, these societies, they didn't experience scarcity of food, and individuals had to do very little work to satisfy their limited ends. They were labeled as, you know, these people were rather affluent in comparison. Uh, thus, the, the former part of the vision mentioned mentioned has also been challenged. The first agriculturalists are now believed to have put in significantly more work rather than less to attain subsistence. Um, so what the heck? In other words, a early agriculturists had to do more work, more hours of this back-breaking labor to get food than foragers ever did. They're also more prone to lethal disease and malnutrition as this result, the shift towards dependence on just a few domesticated plants and animals. Um, their diet almost was completely predicated on complex carbohydrates. And uh, they lived closer to people because that's where the food was, where you lived where the farmers were. They lived closer to domestic animals led to poor sanitation and increase of zoonotic disease. Zoonotic disease, by the way, are diseases that are transferable from animals to humans. Uh, so beyond that, so they also had endured less egalitarian society uh, than hunter-gatherers did. There's almost no indication of increased standards of living, at least immediately after this transition. Who knows why complex hunter-gatherer societies would have decided to give up their way in order to adopt uh, this more agrarian society. Personally, I think they gave it up because of babies. Having babies is so much fun. At least the act of it. We can all agree on that, right? So beyond that, uh, I mean, also... The more babies you produce, the better chance of survival for your family and your lineage and humanity as a whole. It's important. What every creature on Earth is put here to do is survive. And uh, this Neolithic revolution, uh, it's been replaced uh, by a long, gradual process called the Neolithic transition. And, and the reason that is, and when we think about it, the Neolithic transition happened from approximately 11,500 years ago, all the way on up to about 3,000 years ago when we really started to see more civilizations crop up all around the world. Before that, it was pretty common for there to be a, a significant amount of hunter-gatherer societies. I want to talk about wealth transmission in those societies, those hunter-gatherer societies. Smith Eric Alden et al. and Wealth Transmission and Inequality Among Hunter-Gatherers in the Current Anthropology Printing. Interesting of note, at least as a piece of the puzzle to early societal slavery, is that in hunter-gatherer societies, generational wealth can be found in the form of hereditary slavery. Now, hereditary slavery is the most common and pervasive form of slavery found in all of human history. It has the unfortunate effect of being multi-generational and enslaves the offspring of current slaves. And that's really important for generational wealth and for uh, people, right? You need your wealth to be transferable to the next generation to make it important. And the study looked at several modern hunter-gatherer societies and formulated data on wealth inequality. 24% of cases of social 
stratification included slavery. Generally, okay. the slavery occurred in so populations that were a little bit more dense and a little bit less mobile, but it still happened. It still happened in at least these societies that also most people would consider egalitarian. Started becoming more sedentary. Uh, and generally, it was the, the capturing of an enemy, uh, usually even within the same clan. The answer is domestication. But once. And remember, a population gets too big, you have said, to separate. You can't really have really more than 50 people in a hunter-gatherer group without problems arising. And that's uh, kind of an important look on uh, slavery and, and domestication as a whole. hunter-gatherers started leaving stuff behind in their camps. Uh, as I said, uh, resources were more abundant, um, and at this point hunter-gatherers started leaving more and more and more stuff behind what that meant is that stuff attracted animals and uh, critters uh, nature toward it right if you've ever been out camping and you left a candy bar outside chances are you had a raccoon come visit you the same concept applies and when i'm talking about domestication the one thing that i want to hit on here is specifically the very first domesticated animal and that is dogs man's best friend that's right little maxi right next to you was the very first domesticated animal and there are differing reports uh, all the way that we've had dogs domesticated 36,000 years ago i doubt that it's probably more closer to around 15,000 years ago any other wolves at that time um, that show up in the archaeological record it, with humans were probably tamed wolves beyond that okay let's let's talk about about dogs specifically dogs were the harbingers of all of our sources of inequality that might be a stretch but nevertheless uh, as i said dogs were the very first domesticated animals and as i discussed earlier wealth inequality had already really kind of started in these proto-hunter-gatherer societies, and dogs transform that even to a greater degree. And I, I want to take a moment and talk about what happens during the domestication process. So with, with dogs, or with any animal, um, they generally become a little bit smaller, you know, more gra gracile, their, their jaws shorten up, uh, their ears become generally floppier, um, and they become, they, their brains shrink. They don't need their brains as much to survive because they've latched on to another niche, another opportunity, generally humans. Some of their behavioral, there were some behavioral changes as well. Some of them, some of those changes include um, increased docility, which is very important for domestication, uh, an extended breeding season, breed anytime breed anywhere as well as a reduction in motor activity and these changes resulted from a combination of inherited genetic changes in each individual organism's response to its environment those changes are known as ecophentypic responses basically as food and water shelter become easier to acquiesce the body doesn't need it to be as fast strong or motor dependent Couple those changes with the directed pressure set on animal populations by human, including selective breeding for matched behavioral and phenotypic traits, those soft ears, specific coats, um, increased docility, that's what I'm talking about, right? 
that added selection pressure in animals uh, from artificial means in concert with this unconscious selection it paved the way for the, the very first domesticated species. And my hope is that by the end of the podcast that you guys will kind of have an understanding or of the correlation between domestication and slavery. Each episode will focus on this, right? I really want to go back all the way to the beginning of each topic. And this is the start of it for slavery. And domestication of ancient taxa was the linchpin transition in all of human history. It's on the order of magnitude of the creation, invention of the first stone tools, clothing, and fire. The broad spectrum of delineations of formal history that followed this utilization of domesticated animals and plants are profound, and they span pretty much every dimension of science and all of our personal, you know, civilized history. Where the Great Tamer's environment, I can't think of any stronger and con- comprehensive case of this than the, the domestication of animals and plants. It, the reason that is, I mean, why we did it, as I kind of alluded to earlier, right? This idea of being sedentary and growing crops, utilizing animals, it means more food, it means more children, and more children means this a healthier pod of genetic distribution. Now, granted, I guarantee our ancestors didn't specifically think of that, but they definitely thought about having more food for their family, or for their relatives, or for the neighbor, or whatever the case is. And the, the very first domestication, the very first steps, seem to have been initiated uh, in this specific pathway. So at this point, you guys might be like, Seth, I don't care, but how did dogs become domesticated? How did we take the gray wolf, that terrible hunter, the gray wolf, well, not terrible hunter, that terrifying hunter, the gray wolf, and make them into the chihuahua? I mean, that that took a really long time, but turning it into a, a dog or a companion animal didn't take quite that much time and it is a pretty simple process we left our shit behind as we moved from place to place we left scraps of animals we left our waste and dogs kind of caught on to it or wolves did and uh, over time these wolves which would have had a, a much shorter flight or flight response you know they would have been already the more docile ones became somewhat adapted to human society to the human niche and that's how it worked right just kind of over time and then humans were like i think we can use these to help hunt i mean they they knew that that wolves needed to hunt food and that dogs would probably be useful in helping them hunt food and i can kind of see that that's where the original that was probably the original utilization for dogs and their smaller size from the wolf uh, required, you know, less food to maintain. So that's really important, at least from, you know, domesticated animals. You need to put less energy into them than what they bring back to you. There, there needs to be 
some sort of symbiotic relationship between the two of you specifically where that animal needs to do more for you than you are doing for it and i'm talking about only in the, the form of, of mechanical and chemical energy i'm not talking about companionship we all agree that uh, dogs like humans uh, and humans like dogs at least for the most part so this is all happening way before i mean hundreds and, and thousands of, of years before we really ever permanently settled uh, humans ever permanently settled and perhaps this early domestication of, of wolves into dogs laid the groundwork for further domestication of animals and what does that mean for slavery well it laid the groundwork for generational wealth slaves we can assume dogs have been integrated into human societies um, and as these humans in the, the near Middle East, and that's kind of where this is mostly happening in that fertile crescent, um, it, as humans began their slow transition from these hunter-gatherers, proto-hunter-gatherers, where food and resources were open-sourced, um, you know, to a more pastoralistic or agricultural-based system of community where it became much easier to accumulate wealth. Uh, and we know that the very earliest forms of that heritable wealth, other than property and possibly slaves, as I discussed earlier, were domesticated animals. And these heritable aspects of wealth remain the very best predictors of wealth continuity in early societies. A, there's a direct link between domesticates and society, societal inequality and this stratification that occurs uh, after these animals had been domesticated, after they became property. At this point, societies really began to change uh, and develop more hierarchical systems. And noble, uh, through a little bit of conjecture on my part, uh, you can extend this to current institutions of wealth based on domesticates. And like chickens and massive farms and and this is going to all be traced all the way back several millennia to the earliest domestication of our friend the, the doggos right the dogs so at this point when history human history is going through this huge transition uh dogs kind of come with this this pathogen of inequality and the reason i say that is dogs have been seen as a symbol of being wealthy for as long as they've been a part of our societies and we can kind of all agree that it's not hard to see that dogs can be this for first form of living wealth and this is one of the first ways that i really believe that sets domestication on this path towards slavery because slaves can be seen as the the penultimate form of living wealth and we can see other animals beasts of burden kind of as slaves we literally own them you don't think that we own them if you've ever had an animal run away you say oh that's my animal give it back you know it's important to us we own them we pay for them we care for them we provide them with sustenance and a shelter we own them they're literally our slaves it's kind of sad to think about but it's true as we look at the history of dogs we can speculate that the domestication of them was crucial 
for uh, the success of later agrarian societies and their domestication of those animals. And the idea that living or a conscious being can be made in a chattel of a property is just terrifying and it's sad and true. It's, it's true. We've, we've done it forever. We still do it. And it's even sadder to think about is the domestication of wolves into dogs was probably the end of most egalitarian societies as we know it, at least for a majority of the world. Earlier I discussed what happens to an animal through the domestication process. I never really went into, at least I went in a little bit, of how animals are domesticated. And I already talked about the first way, and there are three pathways. And the first one I already discussed, and I'll go into a little bit more detail. That first pathway is the commensal pathway. And as I said, it didn't begin with intentionally bringing the wolves to us. Um, you're, you're crazy. I mean, wolves are frightening, and they're smart, and they have big teeth, and they'd eat me for breakfast if I was one of those uh, hunter-gatherers. So we didn't bring them in, uh, uh, unless we tamed them. So we left our stuff behind, and literally and figuratively... Humans created and uh, have always will create an immense amount of waste, even in hunter-gatherer societies. Um, now, some more modern adaptations of hunter-gatherer societies like Native American Indians really did their best to adopt a no-waste policy. That wasn't always the case. We just left behind what we couldn't use. <laughs> so here we are, living in our small nomadic tribes, settling from place to place and leaving behind food and shelter and in general manipulating our surroundings these animals i'm sure not just wolves hitched on to the human experience or hey they have all this food hey that stuff is bringing other animals here if wolves could talk i'm sure that's what they sounded like like hey those assholes bring food to the to them that's not fair let's eat it so they stuck around human societies. As I also discussed earlier, you probably wouldn't have seen large alpha male wolves doing this. They would have been the smaller, less aggressive ones. And a plausible scenario is that these proto-domestic wolves were the res resident scavengers at the rubbish dumps that we left behind, of those semi-permanent settlements. But both wolves and dogs continue in, in much this role in some places today. Uh, they perpetuate a general dynamic of inter-guild competition where smaller dogs or wolves uh, can survive the aggression of larger ones uh, with only with the access to a refuge. And this is really important. And I talked about this. Only where they have a safe place where they can get everything they need safe canopy of refuge in this case the only place that is they're being a companion animal to humans as we know the process was a little unanticipated so shortly after the completion of domestication of dogs uh, we have cats <clears throat> and eventually 
um, we do a, a more specific um, domestication where we actually try to, to domesticate animals and we get into your you know standard barnyard animals. So we're going to go on a brain break here because I've given you guys a lot of stuff here. So uh, a question to ponder while you go on your brain break is how does somebody come to own another human being? Uh, what effects does that have on the owned party and the owner? And uh, and I'm probably going to do a short podcast on the specificity of the psychology of slave ownership and the dominance and the reality of being a slave. Back to the pathways. The first one was commensal, and I, I think I beat that horse dead. Uh, no pun intended. The next one is involved more human intervention, and that's the prey pathway. Sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? It's not all bad. It's just murdering indiscriminately until you realize that the food will run out. Oh yeah, that's, that's pretty bad. I suppose in the history of mankind, humans have been really good at murdering things like really good so this prey pathway really involves human coercion on prey populations usually medium or larger herbivores uh, targeted as prey they, they wouldn't have been attracted to people because we killed them um, for their yummy meat mm. pigs and cows delicious so after time, humans picked out which prey to hunt and focused on specific traits. So we went from hunting almost whatever we wanted to hunting specific prey. And then humans gathered the prey animals and started to develop these herds with these specific traits. And uh, yeah, then you get domesticated animals after you have them for long enough. Um, and this herding really led to directed breeding among prey populations for even further specific traits that were more usable by early human populations. Making more babies, making more milk, uh, better cuts of meat, so on and so forth. And it's in direct relation, this herding and prey pathway uh, to chiefdoms and pastoral or pastoralism in the Neolithic transition, which really set off the hierarchical chain of command, right? You started really getting people with even greater wealth inequality. And the last pathway is the directed pathway. And I'm not gonna spend much time here, um, even though I think this pathway is a, most likely, it was utilized probably on early slaves to make them, or, to, or at least to attempt to make them more docile over several generations. It was a failed experiment. Humans can't be domesticated in the way that we think of animals being domesticated. A different method is needed entirely. Now I'll talk about that, about humans basically domesticating ourselves. But we have these other finished products, these large herbivores, we have dogs, we have cats, uh, we have these barnyard animals. And then it allowed humans to imagine further machinations for pur purposeful domestication, for purposeful wealth gain. And uh, we see it in horses and donkeys and camels. Uh, regardless, uh, these didn't happen overnight, uh, notwithstanding taming, they took these changes took place over many, many generations of animals. Thankfully for us, these animals' lifespans are quite a bit quicker than our own, as well as their gestation period, as well as how quickly they raise into maturity, which were other traits 
that we specifically sought out. Wow, we've talked a lot about domestication and very little about slavery other than slavery's apparently been present in hunter-gatherer societies since time began. But was what we think of slavery a failed domestication? Well, with the advent of agriculture, domestication and, and the growing wealth really dissected the social egalitarian way of hunter-gatherers, mostly egalitarian. After, as I said, around 50 people, a near-complete egalitarian society can't succeed. There are too many interests uh, for the group. This idea, there eventually needs to be somebody to make the decisions, setting somebody further apart. Well, that person's going to need more food, they're going to need more shelter because they're more important, so thus they gain wealth. And I mean, if you'd ever want to try it, find 50 people, put them in a group, give them a shared goal, and do not designate anybody as a leader. Somebody eventually is going to step up and will rise to power. Somebody is going to be the decision maker. It might not always be the best choice, but these are usually the type A personalities. They may not always be right, but hell, they'll make the decisions for you. It makes life easier on yourself, takes uh, responsibilities off your shoulders, and uh, it, as taking that onus from the population, uh, once it happened, this greater diversification and hierarchical society, uh, social stratification led to dominant structures. And early dominance can have, has a correlative effect on later slavery. The dominance of one man over another or group of people. You may not be the leader of your society, but slavery offered something else. It offered a way to dominate another human uh, that was previously only really seen in domesticated animals and wartime detainees. And the attempted domestication of man by man, slavery, required a modification of the genetic phenotype for tameness. We wanted to make people more tractable. And uh, we were pretty successful at harnessing the power of some plants and animals, but a very large but here. These plants and animal species, they don't exhibit cultural evolution like humans do. In humans, cultural evolution can be so powerful that it can overpower biological evolution. Nature over nurture. And in this case, vice versa. Our environment and how we react to that environment can have and does have genetic ramifications on us, on our later generations. Hold the phone, Seth. You, you made me listen to almost, what, 40 minutes of this? You're telling me that humans never really domesticated other people? Why are we talking about it? Like I said, it, it's, it's all about wealth and, and where that started. And this idea of living wealth that domesticated animals provide at a very early stage in human civilization development. So there, shove it. Nevertheless, there doesn't seem to be a process, at least that I'm aware of, that allows us to domesticate other humans uh, biologically. Social domestication or docility is still considered something a little bit different. We failed at finding a domestication syndrome phenotype. It would have made it easier to have slaves, to be honest, if you could think of them as, like, not people. They have this actual genetic difference in them that um, made them more tractable. And you can see this in, in literature, 
fantasy literature and fiction literature where uh, the idea of a slave uh, is this perfect obedient you know creature existed in humanity that it doesn't really exist at least frequently it would have made it easier if we could just point and say those people they're not just a different color they don't just come from that place not here we're better than them you know like we're over there they're real dumb and stuff history slavery podcast done right that's all you need to know slavery those other people they're worse than us let's enslave them they're different so failing to find phenotypic <laughs> failing to find these phenotypes humans needed other options other methods for enslavement of other humans and it was found we found it yes or no bad humans we found it in the deracination and cultural deprivation and we see this in pretty much every instance of slavery in history it's a process that entails dehumanization as well as the parallel process that i like to call bestialization and it can be seen at least uh, attempted to modes to culturally domesticate slaves i'm gonna break it down a bit domestication syndrome phenotype and i've talked about this a lot relies on the animal quotes becoming neotenous or otherwise retaining selected childhood traits into adulthood otherwise known as the submissive tameness and tractability not otherwise seen in their adult counterparts like i said it failed people <coughs> remain people regardless of slavery and the the phenotypic traits never took hold and selection against aggression in mammals uh, has significant effects on the animal's psychology morphology and physiology and I told you about that. It really changes animals, and you, you don't see that in human slaves. You don't see them physically change too much. Um, and the domestication syndrome, uh, those anatomical changes were very closely tied uh, to humans' need in farming and agriculture. Another thing that we see again and again and again is animal control also required a, a, plethora, a plethora of new inventions, namely collars, restraints prods lashes branding tools does any of that sound familiar i bet it does because those are the very same tools that you'll see used on human slaves throughout history that's shit and which in direct parallel to slavery is we generally regard for the reason of slavery right we wanted to use humans for something that we didn't want to do ourselves I personally don't want to plow a field. I'm not saying I'd ever take a slave, but I don't want to plow a field. Uh, and female slaves were, in the very beginning, have always been used to create more slaves. That's the idea. Even if the owner of the slave, and we'll find this out next episode, even if the owner of the slave has children with the slave, you all you've done is created more slaves, and for literally nothing other than the expense to defeat them but their chemical and mechanical importance far outweighs what you're gonna spend on them uh, 
in, in food and shelter. And, and something does need to be said here. Um, I, I kind of want to talk about the southern United States. We did eventually become quite good at selective breeding and slaves for specific traits such as strength and endurance. That happened. Um, yeah, that's pretty terrible. Another thing along, it's hard for me to wrap my head around, is we had to compul- or no, I shouldn't say we, I never owned a slave, but people, humans, had to compulsorily dominate a person, another human being, another living, breathing person with their own set of ideals and beliefs and, and family and their own genetic history. We had to dominate them. In, in a way that required a deep and physical and emotional deracination, we, we, we wanted to be, make them become less human. And one way we did that was through natal alienation, splitting or sundering a person's social and environmental ties, or at least attempting to. It, it doesn't seem to ever work. We, we all have a part of where we grew up inside of us. Um, so after that sundering is achieved, uh, the deracination leads directly to existential disorientation. They didn't think of it that way. They didn't think in those terms. But what they knew is that, uh, right, that, that sounds bad, but it, in layman's terms, what they knew is that all ties to the individual had with their people and natural surroundings were broken. And it always caused this sense of confusion and a preternatural dread regarding their current circumstance. And the ethics of domination that might makes right involves essentially two components. First, the judgment that one group, the dominant group, is superior to another group, the subordinate one. And second, the moral principle that the superior group has the right to dominate or to control or exploit, subjugate, exterminate, and in some very rare cases, even devour the inferior group. Together, those two things provide a, a moral justification for domination and slavery. The domination of one culture by another, one gender by another, one socioeconomic class by another, or even one species by another. And then through the domestication phenotype, the deracination, and then finally, to add a little seasoning onto the dish of slavery, um, the removal of a moral agency. And to do it, captives were generally brutalized. The process can be seen similarly to the process of taming, which again, direct through relationship to domestication. In addition, upon arrival or in transit, slaves were generally kept with domesticated animals, uh, at least in these Neolithic societies. And really, that accentuated the slaves' animalization. We wanted them to seem less human, and that, I mean, it helped, at least I, I would assume on a psychological level, these people understand that. And this animalization, and, and as I said earlier, I really like to refer to it as bestialization, it just sounds worse to me, and slavery should sound bad, was central to the bondage experience. In this way, we can speculate that the early domestication of herbivores and commensal relationships of wolves paved the way for the exceptionally wide enslavement of humans. And slavery is kind of interesting, right? 
where you have both master and slave fighting over the same food source. And that's why you see it more prevalent in agrarian societies because we had more food available to us. We had the extra food available to give to the slave um, to, to make it even expe more expedient. Uh, female slaves were worth more than male slaves. And again, that's because you can make more for nothing. And all of this is in relation to an increase of wealth and status. So regardless of humanity's best efforts toward domestication, um, we, we never really accomplished it on humans. It was best left to nature. And the, the, the most malicious effect or noticeable effect of slavery on, on humans was that kind of animalization, bestialization, where, and neither the slave or the slaveholder were able to escape the effect. Something interesting, Charles Darwin made this observation on slavery and seeing slavery for the first time instantly with a frightened look and half shut eyes he dropped his hands i shall never forget my feelings of surprise disgust and shame at seeing such a great powerful man afraid even to ward off a blow directed as he thought at his face the man had been trained to a degradation lower than the slavery of the most helpless animal. That is slavery. It's to be held as chattel, as property of another human. It's analogous to domestication. It should, it should be obvious to everybody listening. A checklist. Animals as property? Yep. Animals are subservient to us? Yep. They help turn chemical energy into mechanical energy? Yep. Those are all things that slaves helped accomplish uh, or slaves did for humans, still do for humans. And uh, I, I really want you to understand why we came all the way back to the Neolithic transition. And I know this very first episode of the podcast was kind of a little bit more sciencey than I expected it to be. But uh, I really want to get to the roots, uh, um, the, the very beginning of the evil known as slavery. And slavery is evil. And it's unfortunately has had the effect of showing its face throughout every great society in history but as we make our way forward through this dark and sordid past we'll seek out different examples of slavery um, we'll also seek out different examples of slaves themselves overcoming adversity we'll uh, hear some of the greatest some of their greatest stories harriet tubman frederick Douglass, spartacus um, some of the greatest slave stories that you know as well as i want to introduce some people that you probably don't know some very interesting stories like the man who escaped slavery by shipping himself in a box and i'll i'll get to that at a later date but i want you to know that uh more interesting topics will be coming up and this is a new podcast so i if you guys would do me the huge favor of throwing down uh, a five-star review for me uh, subscribe to my podcast it all really helps check out my website it's historyuncensoredpod.com um, and we're going to pick up next week in sumeria as we kind of talk about the very first written laws known to mankind i hope you enjoyed listening as always with history we never forget have a great day